that you boars and ghouls keep coming back for more. <laughs> You're loyal to the gore. Well, that's good. Welcome to Now Playing's Creep Show Retrospective Series. You see that crap? All that horror crap? Things coming out of crates and eating people? Dead people coming back to life? People turning into weeds, for Christ's sake? Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. One more morbid masterpiece. Hosted by Arnie. Lots of people are going to rejoice when I'm dead. Stuart. That kid don't know if it's night or day when he gets going. Yeah, he's very dedicated. And Jacob. My dad says he's a genius. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. Are you scared? Because you should be. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. I told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Meteor shit! Listener discretion is advised. Are you afraid, Jerry? No. Well, then let's go. Today we're reviewing Creep Show. Starring Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Fritz Weaver, Leslie Nielsen, Carrie Nye, E.G. Marshall, Ted Danson, Ed Harris, Tom Atkins, and Stephen King, directed by George Romero. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I'm why God made podcasters, babe. I'm why God made podcasters. The word in L.A.? Did you just sing that? No, I, I talked like that kid. Oh, okay. <laughs> that really threw me. He has a feature impediment. Daddy, <laughs> why are you taking my comic? <laughs> and this is your knight in shining corduroy, Jacob. And now we're back to Horror King. What people think of as King. Enough of this stand by me, Shawshank, maudlin drama stuff. I mean, we'll get to Hearts in Atlantis and the Green Mile soon enough, I suppose, but... Couple years. We're going to get back to some blood and some guts and some monsters. This isn't just Stephen King. Come on. This is a heavyweight pairing. King Kong versus Godzilla or Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. The girl is mine. <laughs> I mean, this is a heavyweight duo here. Stephen King and George Romero together. Yes, I actually have my Creepshow Blu-ray signed by George Romero from one of the horror cons. So I was excited Romero was here. As we mentioned way back when, when we did The Stand, Romero was supposed to direct it. He was also supposed to direct Salem's Lot before it was a TV movie. He and King had been partnered for years trying to figure out how they could get together and make a movie. And... They decided they wanted to make The Stand, and they wanted to film it in 70 millimeter, and they wanted it all to be 3D. <laughs> and this was 1979, 1980? 1980, 81, yeah. Okay, yeah. They're like, nobody's going to give us all this money, because they also want to make it a trilogy. 30 years too soon, you guys. You, you could have <laughs> sold this 30 years later. I think he might have. King at least did. Romero kind of burned his name with those later Living Dead films, but <laughs> at this point, they were thinking they needed to make a movie together to show box office profitability and something 
a bit more modest in scope, and Romero still was thinking big. He wanted to do an anthology film series with King writing all the scripts, and it would trace the origins of the horror movie from beginning to end. The first one would be black and white and trying to call back to like Caligari type stuff. And they do like a 3D one and a 50s monster movie one and have all these horror movies going through like one per decade of cinema. And King was like, no, no, why don't we just do an (laughs) anthology? We both grew up reading EC comics. So let's do a comic book movie. Yeah. Hey, at a time when very few were being made, Superman might have been the only one out there. Swamp thing. But by and large, they weren't cranking out comic book movies. Jacob, I got to ask, you're our comic book guy. Have you ever picked up an EC comic? Yeah, I've picked up some reprints here and there that they've done. I mean, EC comics is really important in the history of comic books because it was kind of like the comic that brought a lot of scrutiny to the comic book world. Like horror comics were banned and it was because of EC comics. That's the comic that they went to that they used for their example. Just being too gruesome and corrupting the youth. We're talking what about McCarthy era, right? 1950s. Yeah. In the fifties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I knew of it historically. I can honestly say I have never picked up any of these. And I was the target market. God knows if I were alive in that era, I would have been the kid in the beginning of this movie. I would have been the one sneaking at home. You know, I grew up in the 80s. So what did I have? I had late night cable horror movies and I had dial a horror 900 numbers. And that was how I got my fix. That was how I rebelled against my parents. But yeah, I never saw a horror comic and I, I didn't even know they reprinted these. Oh yeah. Now they sell them in really expensive archival edition that's the only way to really get them now yeah i read some reprints of these in the 80s and 90s and ec is like the epitome of it but even marvel back in the 50s and early 60s had some of these comics that were these just random anthologies of horror stories and sci-fi stories that were all predicated on irony you know that was all about the twist ending m night Shyamalan would have loved them there's definitely a formula and you'll see that here i mean i think this is actually a pretty faithful adaptation of those old ec comic stories yeah i thought they were always fun though i thought that they went a little bit more risque you know not with nudity but with gore and just more content than you could ever get when the Comic Code Authority showed up. And again, it wasn't just EC. DC was doing some of this. Marvel was doing some of this. Yeah, No, horror comics were extremely popular before the Comics Code was enforced. Yeah, the only EC comic I ever picked up was Mad Magazine, because apparently <laughs> when they got in such hot water with putting out this stuff and corrupting young minds with these horrible tales that influenced them and made kids want to kill, they were like, alright, we gotta do something funny, and And that was actually how Mad Magazine started. Yeah, I was a huge Mad Magazine fan. Called Magazine because then it wouldn't fall under the Comic Code Authority. Interesting. Okay. Well, good bypass. The other thing I would say is, though I never picked up an issue of Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror, I did see the movies. I did know in the early 70s there were British movie adaptations, and I loved those and came to Creepshow expecting more of that. I was already a horror fan by the time I got to see this on cable oh around what 1983 1984 
I was also a big fan of Creepshow the comic, which is, you know, the graphic novel interpretation of this movie. I actually got to read that long before I saw the movie. I read that comic for this review. I have owned it for a long time. That comic is quite the collectible these days, as you might imagine. And I saw an interview recently with the creator of the comic, and he's like, yeah, they gave me the script and told me I had a couple of weeks. I just cranked it out. I'm not really very proud of it, but people keep having me sign it, and I think it's because they like the movie, not the comic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what I would say about this. It's incredibly violent. Like, it pushed the boundaries when the cockroaches erupt and all the things we're going to talk about. It's bigger and splashier on the page than what they can get away in the R-rated movie movie. And so for that, I think it set my expectations maybe higher. I actually was prepared for a much crazier, darker, scarier movie than what I actually got when I saw Creepshow years later. It's important to point out that graphic novel is not published by Marvel or DC. It was published by the New American Library, who was King's book publisher and a paperback publisher. So I think they thumbed their nose at the comic code, even though they did tone down a lot of the language. Stuart, you're saying that comic, I guess, raised your expectation for this. Maybe you felt a little bit disappointed. Look, I saw this film way too young. I had to be (laughs) eight years old at the most, just a couple years after it came out. We're over at some relative's house for summer vacation. They lived in a state where you could have basements, and all the boys lived in the basement, so we'd always hang out down there. They had their own TV down there. My cousin, who was probably about five years older, probably 12, pulls out the tape. He's like, you gotta watch this. If you're a man, you're gonna watch this, and you're not gonna close your eyes. (laughs) And gosh darn it, I did it. It scared the hell out of me. Like, I I have never watched this movie since until the time to review this podcast. But, like, for me, this is, like, the scariest movie ever because I remember watching it at seven or eight years old. I didn't see this movie until 88. Creepshow 2 had just come out on VHS, and I decided to make a double feature of it. I was doing retrospectives alone long before now playing, and... I'd been meaning to see the original one, so I did kind of both in one sitting. I've rewatched this first one a couple of times through the 90s, but it's been 20 years since I saw it last, and I haven't seen Creepshow 2 since that watching in 88, even though I owned the Blu-ray. So I am looking forward to getting back and seeing if these are both as good as I remember. Creepshow I know very well. I saw it many, many times in the 80s. I could quote it. Again, just knowing the comic, knowing the movie. Creepshow 2, I saw it once in theaters. I have much dimmer memories of that, but some are strong. I I still remember that one. The other ones that we're including in this retrospective, Creepshow 3, I have no idea about and fear the worst. But, you know, this was coming out at a time when Stephen King movies were kind of a rare thing and a treasured thing. He was still working with the best. You know, Brian De Palma's Carrie, Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot was on TV, Stanley Kubrick's Shining, and this. So there wasn't any Children of the Corn. There wasn't any Night Shift stuff. These were the first short stories of Stephen King coming to a movie theater screen. Yeah, it's weird because we've already reviewed Cat's Eye. And Cat's Eye feels like an unofficial kind of sequel follow-up to this with the anthology short stories. But this is the originator. Are these all King short stories here? I, I know he did the screenplay. Did he do Father's Day in some book and, and all this stuff? Some of them, yes. Some of them were specifically written for the screen, like the very first one, Father's Day, was original. 
Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill was a short story called Weeds that had been published in a magazine in 76 and was really hard to get until recently when Cemetery Dance Publications started reprinting it. Uh, Something to Tide You Over is original from what I can tell. The Crate was a short story first. And their Creeping Up on You was new. So he either adapted his own work or wrote original work for this. And it's very possible some of these others are stories he adapted. King did so much short story publication in college and after before he was even a published author. So much is uncollected still. Or they may have just been ideas that were prattling around his head. He wrote this screenplay 60 days from the time they decided to do it. They're like, well, we'll need us script in 60 days and they just had said let's do it king went away came back in exactly 60 days and had pretty much the final script yeah and he probably wrote three novels in between too that man's prolific (laughs) i have no doubt that that man can turn it around and lickety split but yeah this is one of my favorites i do think when i think of stephen king this is one of the ones that i really think about this first creep show is For my money, for my memory anyway, we'll get into my modern thinking, this is one of the very best Stephen King adaptations. I think of it as being one of the most loved, you know? As far as the horror stuff goes, it feels like Shining, Carrie, Pet Cemetery, and this are the top four I see promoted when I go to horror cons and that kind of thing. It helps that this had a great poster too or box art that freaked me out as a kid as well. Yep. You gotta love the creeper. That's not the crypt taker, is it? Yeah, that, that that would come years later. The Tales from the Crypt and the Crypt Keeper, all of that was from the original EC run, but uh, all of those shows and, and everything owes a debt to this. There were other anthology horror series on TV, but I do think that Creep Show kicked off a big trend in the 80s and one I really loved. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt Amazing Stories, which was perhaps my first introduction to anthology horror it spun straight out of this, right? Spielberg was like, I want to make my own creep show and we'll do it on NBC. Yeah, exactly. Amazing Stories was another old time, I think it was a magazine, but it was a publication of crazy science fiction short stories. Absolutely. This is a very influential movie. Not a huge hit, but I think a modest success and definitely leaves a long shadow. Now, I also, in prepping for this, just picked up this is a brand new release disc just came out a few weeks ago it's called just desserts the making of creep show and i was excited you know it's so often that this stuff comes out after we do the show or we've even had to reschedule some shows some recordings because of things like this shocker did that to us we recorded an entire show and then they came out with the blu-ray with commentary so i got to get this disc and I thought it was going to be one of those fan-made documentaries like Never Sleep Again, The Nightmare on Elm Street 1, or Crystal Lake Memories. No, I had to pay full Blu-ray price just for the bonus features from the UK DVD release. (laughs) What? That's all it is? Yeah, here's the great thing. This is a 90-minute documentary that was a bonus feature made for the UK DVD, but then it has two audio commentaries over the documentary (laughs) and one of them is the maker of the documentary telling about the making of the documentary wow this is too much inception for me (laughs) documentary on the documentary (laughs) yeah what the behind the scenes guy thinks of what he's doing boy that's great i listened to that commentary and i was angry i was white knuckling 
But while I was driving the car listening, because I'm like, you better tell me some creep so shit, because if all you tell me is how you met with this actor and then met with that actor, I'm going to be pissed. Well, that's pretty much all he said, but it was kind of interesting. He talked for a good 40 minutes about how this came to be, which may be too long, but what it was was he worked for Anchor Bay and wanted to get in doing their bonus features, but they had plenty of people. So he started his own company and he became friends. He actually was on the set of Land of the Dead. So he was friends with Romero and he worked up a pitch for Warner Brothers to do this for their upcoming release of the movie. And Warner Brothers looked at it and said, we have our own people. We don't need you. We have no desire to do this and shat out that movie on a very bare bones release. But overseas, distribution for this was owned by Fox. So he took his proposal, sent it over to Fox UK. They're like, absolutely, delayed the release of their DVD for a year and gave him a very small amount of money to do this. Well, because of the small amount of money, he retained all non-UK distribution rights for this. So he could sell it again later. He put a Kickstarter together and now has released his bonus features as its own movie. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you watched it. I mean, I like Creepshow, but I don't know if I like it that much to shell out for an entirely separate disc that just talks about who he could rustle up 20 years later to talk about how it was made. The absolute worst part is, and I was so pissed, because I didn't realize what I was watching until I listened to the commentary. Well, I'm not going to listen to the commentary until I watch the movie, right? So I'm watching this documentary, and I'm like, you motherfucker. How did you charge me $20 for a documentary about Creepshow and you didn't get King? You didn't even get archive footage of King. You got people talking about King. There's no King in this movie. Well, when I listened to his commentary, I now understood this was just a DVD bonus feature. He tried to get King. Romero tried to get King. King's like, I don't want to be associated with this. It might be due to his acting that we're going to talk about later. Hmm. But they just couldn't get him. And yeah, at least it brings some of the bonus features to the States. It did then make me have to buy that UK DVD anyway, though, because apparently he didn't get worldwide distribution rights to the movie commentary that he moderated with Savini and Romero. So there you go. I believe I got my just desserts with this thing. (laughs) Sounds delicious. Arnie, are we going to do a plot summary or how do you want to do this? There are five, six different stories. Yeah, and I've got a summary here that's all of them and we'll just kind of knock it out and then we can go through each story after. Sounds good. Take it away. So Creepshow is an anthology. We've got five short stories and it's bookended by a very short sixth story. And the movie opens with a young boy named Billy yelled at by his father, Stan, played by Tom Atkins. Stan is upset Billy reads trashy comic books and throws his copy of Creepshow in the garbage. The wind blows it out and flips through its pages, which is where the five main stories derive. The first is Father's Day. In it, a family of rich snobs have gathered for their annual celebration of the death of their rich patriarch, Nathan Graham. The old man was emotionally abusive to his daughter Bedelia, and when the woman found a boyfriend, Nathan had her beau killed. In a fit of rage... Propelled by the old man's demands for a cake on Father's Day, Bedelia bashed his skull in with an ashtray. Now dead, his fortune has gone to his heirs. But on this Father's Day, as Bedelia sits at Nathan's grave discussing how horrible he was, Nathan returns as a grotesque zombie, chanting, Where's my cake? I want my cake! 
he proceeds to kill the gathered family members until he finally gets his Father's Day cake made from the head of his great-niece. Then in the second story, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Varel, Stephen King plays the titular Jordy. When a meteor crashes in Jordy's farm, he thinks it'll bring him riches, but touching the rock infects the man. Soon his body starts to sprout green growth all over. He is becoming a plant. Eventually, he is completely covered in the green stuff, which is also growing outside due to the meteor, so Jordy Plant gets his shotgun and blows off his own head. The third tale, Something to Tide You Over, stars Leslie Nielsen as Richard Vickers. It's a real knee slapper. <laughs> a lot of slapstick in this one. But don't call him Shirley. <laughs> He's a wealthy man cuckolded by his wife, Becky, with the good hair. So Richard takes his revenge. At gunpoint, he forces Becky's lover, Harry, played by Ted Danson, to the beach. There, Richard buries the man up to his neck in the sand and lets the tide roll in. On a video feed, Harry can see the same was done to Becky as she drowns underneath the oncoming waves. Richard returns back home, but he's followed by the zombie forms of Becky and Harry. They get their revenge, taking Richard to the beach and burying him up to his neck. As the tide rolls in, Richard yells he can hold his breath for a long time. The fourth story is The Crate, starring Hal Holbrook as a college professor, Henry Northup, henpecked husband to drunk, abrasive wife, Billy, played by Adrian Barbeau. During a faculty party, Henry's friend and co-worker Dexter Stanley gets a call. A janitor found a strange crate in a campus building. It's dated 1834 and from an Arctic expedition. Dexter arrives, and he and the janitor open the crate, releasing a furry, fanged beast. It kills and eats the janitor, as well as a grad student who was also in the building. Not sure what to do, Dexter goes to his friend Henry. Henry drugs his friend with sleeping pills, and then leaves a note for his wife Billy, saying Dexter assaulted a woman on campus, and he needs Billy to come help clean it up. Billy takes the bait, and in the building, Henry feeds his wife to the monster. Henry then traps the creature and drops its crate in a nearby lake. He then tells this story to Stanley, who agrees to keep his friend's secret. The final story is They're Creeping Up On You, where E.G. Marshall plays Upson Pratt, a business tycoon and germaphobe. In his stark apartment, he takes calls about his latest corporate takeover while trying to rid his home of some cockroaches he finds. But the infestation is great, and when a blackout causes his building to lose power, the bugs attack, festering inside the man. When the lights come back on, Pratt's body explodes with thousands of roaches. And that ends the comic as we return to Billy, still angry at his father, and we see the boy ordered a voodoo doll from his Creepshow issue. The doll represents Billy's father, and the boy proceeds to stab it with pins as credits roll. Quite a bit in there, and it's surprising how much of this movie I remembered. Everything I thought I remembered, I'm like, was that one or two? All one, especially this opening story here, though, with Tom Atkins and Stephen King's son as Billy. Oh, okay. I was wondering why they went with this kid. Okay. Joe King. He, they Romero went, he looks like the boy on the promotional art we've already made, so let's go ahead and use him. <laughs> Great way to do casting. I can see it now. And I think he's a writer in his own right now. I think he's the one that wrote Heart Shaped Box and Horns. Yeah, he's got some popular comics, too. Yeah, Joe King, he now goes by Joe Hill based on his middle name. I guess not to be coattailing his father. Had his first number one bestseller this year with The Fireman. 
And then King's other son, Owen, does go by Owen King, and he's a writer as well. I guess if you grew up living with King, the pressure might be high to turn out a book a week. <laughs> Even Tabitha barfs one out every now and then. I don't know who <laughs> reads them. So is this Halloween night? There, there's a pumpkin. I know it's Tom Atkins, so maybe it's just a Halloween the f- movie reference. But I do take it as like, I don't know, there's no trick-or-treating, but there's that jack-o'-lantern in the window. This movie came out in November of 82. Halloween would have still been on the mind. I think everybody tries to get their horror film out in September or October. So I took this. If you got a jack-o'-lantern in the window, maybe you're really lazy with decorations, but it's probably Halloween-ish. Yeah, and I mean, Halloween was on people's mind, John Carpenter. Halloween 3 was on people's minds because Tom Atkins had just been fighting the Irish and Stonehenge (laughs) and whatever just a couple weeks before this movie came out. So he was already out there promoting that film. I think it's the one that I still associate him the most with. If not his best work, it is the one I, I guess, blame him for. Tom Atkins, you know, I believe it. He just portrays everything about an asshole dad. You know, the <laughs> sitting down, drinking a beer, going to tell his son how to be a man while, yeah, he has his own illicit books and magazines in his dresser drawer. I, Yeah, you hate this guy instantly. I love his hair in this. I don't know if that was a wig or a dye job. But Tom Atkins, I always think of as having the dark hair, but they put this horrible blonde wig on him. He claims he didn't want this role. The one he campaigned for was Jodie Verrill, but they're like, no, Keen's got that one locked up. You have to play the asshole dad. I think he's a great asshole dad. I remember a lot about this movie, even though I hadn't seen it since I was like eight years old. I remember how just nasty and dirty feeling this movie feels as a whole. Like there's not a whole lot of good people and you get that right away with his father i mean i remember the ending of this film so vividly just like it made me sick to my stomach like as a kid but yeah you get that right away there's not really any good people in this movie and and you see that with the father here and if i can take a moment to enjoy the toy porn on billy's shelf though we get a close-up of his shelf and it's filled with monsters there's a couple godzillas and things But my God, it's that classic Godzilla that stood like 18 inches tall and the flame came out of its mouth. That thing goes for like $400 these days. And he had the Mego Hulk. And I'm not talking the common six inch one. He had the 10 inch collector's edition Hulk. So that dad may have been an asshole, but he was setting his son up. (laughs) maybe mom was buying all of it i feel like she's the nice one here she's the one that disapproves of the physical violence you know the the guy slaps the kid that's what tells you it's really gone too far maybe he shouldn't be reading that comics maybe he has been acting weirder and it's been a bad influence on him but when the dad hits the son and it leaves a mark like the makeup person went crazy on this the kid's (laughs) got a red face for half his face for the rest of the movie yeah i think we all want to see this guy condemned and that's one thing i would say about all of these short tales is most of them in any way has characters that you are rooting for to get punished that there is something very satisfying when they get their comeuppance and yeah we have to wait the whole movie but when it comes it's a corker it's a shocker and as billy goes to bed you know the dad's all satisfied that he's raising a man that's why god made fathers babe we see i don't know what to call this thing i call it the crypt keeper is there some name for this skeleton ghost thing hanging outside the window 
just staring at Billy as he smiles back at him? I think the way it works is that you name it after whatever the comic is. That Tales from the Crypt had the Crypt Keeper. Vault of Horror had the Vault Keeper. I think that <laughs> that makes this guy the Creeper? He's just the Creep. The comic book named him the Creep. The sequel movie will call him the Creep. But yeah, he's just Creep. And it's his show. Okay. Yeah, and I love this. I, it's it's kind of sad to me that he isn't the Crypt Keeper because I don't think that they had the puppetry to make it talk and, and work. It, it can barely move. I mean, they're working at the max capacity of their budget. But I just love seeing the skeletal figure outside the window and it makes Billy smile. That they're in cahoots together. That they have a plan of attack really is a fun detail. Yeah, he says, I hope you rot in hell to his dad as he's up in his room. Like, a nasty, nasty film. See, but, you know, I just want to put it out there. I love my parents. But it was a source of tension. And it became more and more so throughout the 80s. Of They just didn't feel comfortable allowing me to consume as much horror as I started consuming. So I could relate to this tension. I never got a voodoo doll. I never attacked them. But I did really relate to the idea that your parents just won't let you enjoy what you enjoy. And so something has to be done. I think that's pretty common. I mean, I had strife with my parents and I work with a person whose son just turned 13 and she was telling me how every single morning before coming to work, she has to hear how much he hates her at least a dozen times. Mm -hmm. I think you get to a certain age and there's just some pushback. So it wasn't foreign to me to tell my parents, I hope they burn in hell. Uh, it's probably a pretty <laughs> common thing there. Okay, just different upbringings then, yeah. <laughs> He's a little young for that. He's not a teenager yet, so I, I feel like... I started at age eight, so... <laughs> I know when you started. I was there. <laughs> but this creep outside the window there, a couple things, it goes to a cartoon... Tom Savini was disappointed by that because, first of all, this is a real human skeleton. This is not a puppet. Like, real? Like, they dug up a body? <laughs> real bones? Is that legal? It's a story I heard while researching the making of this, and it reminded me I heard this exact same story when we were discussing Return of the Living Dead. You can order them from India. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so you got this real human skeleton there, and they puppeted it, and... Savini said he got it doing this entire motion where it would float in the air and wave and everything and that it looked great, but that they went to the animation because they wanted the comic book feel. My personal suspicion, though nobody confirms this, is it didn't look great. <laughs> yes. Romero was being very kind. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to side with Romero on this one and say, I just love that this is based on the comic book. I mean, you could have made this a horror anthology and not tied it to this illicit magazine that's being thrown away in the trash. But to me, that's everything. By tying it to that, it gives the filmmakers, the cinematographers, the art directors, so much to play off of. The color schemes, the way they're going to use various panels at the same time, the, the cartoon interlude. I love it all. To me, it is what makes Creepshow better than any other anthology horror movie. Yeah, I do love the aesthetics of this film, how they incorporate that comic book aesthetic. 
in here, like you said, Stuart, where they'll go to panels for certain scenes, how every segment will end going into a drawing, the way they use lighting at certain times and just go bright red or bright, you know, those primary colors. I do love how they incorporated that comic book feel into this film. They do it really well. Yeah, when it's lightning here, it, it's purple. We have reviewed a ton of comic book movies for now playing, right? And I got thinking about it. Have any felt this comic bookish? And I think the closest we came was Ang Lee's Hulk, where he also did some of the panel type stuff and some of the lighting. But even he didn't go as far as this does. This is truly a comic book on screen. And that is one of the things that I remembered about it and love most about it. The art in here is just amazing. It is not the same in that graphic novel. That graphic novel is very workmanlike. But here, when they cut to the animations of these people or the still frames, it's just incredible. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and I love the tease of it, too. I love the fact that if you go into this cold and don't know any of the stories to come... Through the credit sequence, as the pages are flipping in the wind, we're going to just get images that make you want to see this. I mean, the dad also mentions monsters in crates and people coming back from the dead. We know some of the content, but by seeing it and teasing it early, it does whet our appetite for each new story. We're in anticipation of each new adventure as it comes. And the first one is Father's Day. Always my favorite. This was the one for many really? reasons. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, this was the one I loved the most. Partly because it is the one coming first. It has the advantage of being the, the one that sets the tone for all the others. And I feel like a lot of the other ones have a similar kind of payoff. There's a lot of <laughs> coming back from the dead in this movie. By coming out of the gate first, it also catches Romero... At his strength, right? I mean, Romero doing a zombie story, crawling out of the grave. This is his wheelhouse. Yeah, I'll agree that I think probably the best effects are with this one, with that zombie coming out of the grave and, and walking around. It's as good as anything he would do. Well, probably a better looking zombie than even as I though I love Dawn of the Dead. You know, those were just people painted blue. This is a great looking zombie here. I'm going to come out and say this is my least favorite of this movie, I think. I do agree with you, though. The zombie effect is tremendous, but this is one of the longer shorts in this movie, and it's got a very simple premise stretched out just a bit too long. Well, to each their own. I, I also think it's helped by this one having some of the better acting performances. I mean, it's big, it's grandiose, but I really dig Bedelia here. Vivica Linfors is both touching and uh, crazy when she's introduced as the wild aunt who's coming to a graveside. We don't really know what she's about to do. She's swerving all over the road. And in between, we're getting the backstory being told by her aunt sylvia and the grandkids and this family relation is very confusing because she is the great aunt of two of the kids there richard and cass and cass just brought her new husband hank to the party and so i'm like okay exactly how is sylvia related to bedelia how is sylvia related to richard and cass i never quite got that 
together. But I get that they're just a nasty extended family who are held together by the money of this dead man. Yeah, and that's what I like about this, even though, yeah, I don't know if I totally understand all the relationships. I get they're related. And I agree, Arnie, that this one might go on a little bit long. It goes long in the wrong parts. I, I want to see more killing. But I do love, again, this unredeemable family. Like, I do feel with Thor, you want to a lot of times root for people to die and yeah so you, to make them as nasty as possible you know this is stereotypical and cliche the rich family that but it works really well and yet i do feel for bedelia i would say out of all of the stories she's the one and some of it's the performance when she's at the graveside drinking and talking i mean i think it wasn't until this viewing i've seen this movie many times but i finally realized this was a sexual molestation the the inference of cake I'm going to get my cake. This dad took sexual advantage of her. It should have been pie, right? Yeah. I mean, but it's the same thing. Yeah. No, they do call out there was a Freudian relationship between mm-hmm. the two. Yes. It's clear now. But was it physical or was it merely lust? I kind of got that he just lusted after her. And I honestly believed he wanted cake. I, I really, they were making a cake. <laughs> I didn't read cake as vagina. But the phallus of that, you know, we get the flashback. And again, I love the way that they do it up comic book style. Sometimes the frame is actually in the shape of a birthday cake as she's going through there. And yeah, she's squeezing that tube and it's running all over the cake. Yeah, no, I get it this time in a way I never did before. Yeah, banging that cane. Yeah, a lot of phallic objects here. And the fact that she had a lover and he couldn't stand that. He permitted her to take care of him and she allowed herself to take care of him. Yeah, when he killed her love, that was really the snapping point. That is what makes her pick up that ashtray and beam him. And really, in stories such as these, I'm used to bad people kills good person, bad people get punished. But this guy, man, I feel bad for Bedelia, right? He's standing there, he's emotionally abusive, possibly physically abusive, and usually in this kind of movie... You'd root for him to be killed. So Yeah, if there is a good guy in this segment, it is Bedelia, and she's not going to last very long. Yeah, that is the surprise. I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen the the first time. Well, actually, that's probably not true. I read the comic. (laughs) I knew very well what was going to happen. But looking at this, I would not have guessed. I don't think there's anything to tell you he's coming back from the grave. That She's sitting at the graveside. She spills some whiskey. She hears a voice. But these are all voices in her head. She's kind of mad. So I just presume that, you know, she's reliving something. Yeah, and if this was sitting around the campfire telling the story, whatever, but because we're now playing, it says this is the seventh anniversary since his death. Why come up now? Like, I was wondering, is it because she spilled the whiskey? Does that raise him? Because they do linger on that bottle falling over a little bit. The graphic novel insinuates it's because it's nastier than ever. And I think we can credit that to the introduction of a new element. Hank, played by... Ed Harris in an early role here. With hair. Barely, but yes. But also amazing dance moves that man has. Who would have thought (laughs) it? I mean, he's just doing like the robot and all this stuff. Yeah, I like these people. I I hear you guys saying that they're not sympathetic because, yeah, they're a snooty rich family, but they're survivors too. They're survivors of a terrible patriarch. So this is the outlier of Creepshow in that it is a story where the ending doesn't give us what we're rooting for, it's actually sad that they're going to be picked off by the person that deserved to be killed. That he gets his cake means that we get a sad ending. But 
You've got Sylvia there calling Cass a hog. I mean, these are nasty people. They're not just nasty because they're rich and this is the 80s. They're mean. They're backbiting. They're not just survivors. They're vultures. Yeah, I mean, I I get that. And I also think another reason he might have come back with the hooch and all that, it was mentioned that he was a bootlegger. So maybe getting a taste of that yeah, raised him from the dead, Jacob. You're on to something. There's no real reason why he comes back from the dead at this point now but i'm glad he does because yeah it's it's exciting and and yeah when he comes out man and he gets on top of bedelia yeah again that i can't escape the reading now that he it was sexual violence i will add one other thing though to your point jacob i thought about this while watching none of these stories have a why no i know i know we're gonna keep asking And it's just like Twilight Zone or Tales from the Dark Side or Tales from the Crypt. You just have to understand you're living in a world where monsters are just under the surface. And it's the world that when I was 12, I wished was and kept hoping was, is that if you just turn the corner, if you just peel back the curtain, you're going to find zombies. But there's zombies in a couple of these stories. There's a bunch of roaches. There's supernatural stuff going on. And whether you're doing a 25-minute TV episode or a 20 to 30 minute vignette in this movie you just don't have time to give a complete origin of everything you don't have the necronomicon that somebody's going to read and whatnot and i don't even need that i don't need to know why they're zombies i was just wondering why the seventh anniversary why why pick now maybe because yeah there's hank maybe there's more people to kill and i i wish there was more killing in this one we'll see him choke out bedelia i do like hank like hank goes looking for bedelia because they all want to eat and they're waiting for her to come in from the cemetery and you know he trips and falls into that grave and the headstone falls on him telepathically it's weird. It's like the zombie is very far away. He doesn't push it. He's like just commands it to fall over. He's he's mystical. Yeah, no, I like it. Every time Hank moves, like that headstone like moves a little further towards the edge to fall on him. I, I Again, I don't need an explanation why it's magically moving. I'm here for the kills. I feel like after Hank, though, uh, we'll see some bloody footprints, but that's about it. Oh, no, we get the great head twist on Sylvia. I thought that was my favorite kill that was done in the kitchen there. Sylvia comes in finds the cook has been killed. So he's not just here to kill his family, which could be a reading. But that cook who was in the kitchen when he was murdered, he's killing her too. And you think he's going to kill anyone that comes around until he gets his cake. Here's the other why I'm wondering. Zombie dad finally gets his cake. Why is it not Bedelia's head? Why is it Sylvia's head covered in frosting and candles? She was there at the time. It's mentioned that she helped Bedelia cover up the crime. So she's just as much a reason he didn't get the cake, I guess. Well, no, Bedelia is the reason he didn't get the Mm -hmm. cake. She killed him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're (laughs) right. Perhaps you could have structured this to have greater ironies, and certainly we wouldn't have minded seeing these grandkids, the least sympathetic characters. Yeah, Richard and Cass. Getting a little kill scene as well, but, you know, it doesn't need to be protracted either. I I think it's just enough. We know they're going to get killed. You know, it fades back to comic, and I know the next panel if, if they drew it would involve him opening his presence you know ripping them apart it would, it would it's the end of them yeah the graphic novel says something about he blew out his candles and then he blew out his niece and nephew 
Yeah, exactly. That's my one criticism for this segment is I, I feel like once you get into the horror stuff, it goes by really fast. There's a long setup and, and then a quick payoff. I would have liked more zombie killing. I agree. I would have liked more horror. Like, kill Bedelia early and have the zombie be around to up the suspense when Hank goes out and when other people are looking. It's also rushed, but to just draw it out and have like one death and you know finding the body and a little bit more fear i've seen it done in so many friday the 13th and halloween films they could have done it here in microcosm i see i think this is the most successful one again i like the backstory stuff i think you needed the build up to all of this and once the zombie gets going you know i think for me it's the voice work and the sound effects his gurgle the way that he speaks and the splats when he's doing his stuff. I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think he's fearsome. I, I like this start to finish. To me, it's the most successful chapter. I'll agree with you. He's the most successful monster. How's that? I love his look. I was watching it. I'm like, wow, that's better than anything they'd done in any of the Living Dead films. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You wish he could appear in Day of the Dead. Yeah, I, I, I kind of got that bub feeling off of him. But this leads to the second story. And all right, let's just get it out of the way. Okay, Artie, you said that first one was the worst one. Come on, it's worse than this? This is the low point for me. Oh, yeah. All right, now there's a little bit. The second one, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. And Stephen King, I have heard two conflicting stories as to why he's starring. I want to know who cast him here. Yeah, I want to know. According to King himself, he had done a cameo in Romero's Night Riders. And Romero said he really wanted King to play this part. And King was nervous. He's like, I'm a writer, not an actor. He's right there. <laughs> and Romero just told him, Keep doing it. But yeah, when you hear Tom Atkins' story, what you hear is him saying that Romero told him King really wants to play this part. So how about you play the dad? So there's two different stories here. But yes, when I first saw this in 88, I was just appalled. Stephen King, as this not quite mentally addled Jordy, he is over the top and it annoyed the hell out of me and i know that's where you two are coming in right that's where i'm coming i mean if this stuff was funny if there were good jokes or good humor i could go with it it's just oof. i think that is the joke is stephen king acting mentally challenged well i mentioned king wouldn't take part in any of the behind the scenes stuff and according to romero on the commentary King holds a bit of a grudge over this part because he says Romero told him to play it this big, and I guess he's really embarrassed by this segment. <laughs> he should be. No, come on. It's not that bad. It is that bad. Oh, it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you console him. It's The world can see it's that bad. But hey, you know what? He never claimed to be an actor, so... Yeah, this is on Romero. Look, if it was during his cocaine phase, I'm sure that's just a normal Tuesday for him. Oh, Savini had a funny story. He said, it's absolutely no wonder Stephen King got hit by a car because in the middle of making this, King disappeared. Savini had to go get some supplies, saw Stephen King walking down the middle of a four-lane highway, reading <laughs> a book and drinking straight from a bottle of Dom Perignon. Jeez. <laughs> But no, Romero says this is exactly how it needed to be played, but 
I guess that's why King is distancing himself from this. The two would work together again with the dark half. We'll get to that a couple years from now. But Romero would direct a King story again, plus work on the next couple of anthologies. But yeah, this is, I guess, King's cross to bear. Here's the thing. I'm from the South. I've had to deal with a lot of Rube stereotypes over time. I just hated Hee Haw at this time. I mean, I couldn't even watch that show. You know, people would pop out of the cornfield like, Hello! And be like, ugh. That's why I didn't like this segment then, was it was... The, I just didn't like this character. And I just... I had no feeling about him being turned or not. And, you know, Stephen King going big, it's the only thing he could do, right? He can't give us a nuanced performance. And I think this one is supposed to be funnier, so... Bigger is better in comedy. That's where I have come down on this, is this entire segment is so wacky and so over the top. And I don't know if they did the music to match his performance or if this was just the entire tone from the beginning. But they've got, like, boring sounds in the soundtrack and things going on. And so I have come to really appreciate his performance as being a fit. Because it's as bad as everything else in this segment? The very first time I saw this, even though King is bad, this is the story that haunted me. Oh my god, a guy just touches a meteor, and plants start growing out of him, and itching, and hurting, and yeah, he may be a dumb bumpkin, but it is a sad and lonely death that is pretty tragic. And the way it is in the short story, that weed is actually an alien life form. It's a kind of like a little shop of horrors type thing where it's from space and it's going to eat meat. It's going to eat humans. And Jordy barely is able to kill himself, but they're still spreading towards the town. Here, there's something implied. We see the weeds growing in the grass and spreading, but it could just be a horrible predatory plant, not necessarily an alien life form. But I was haunted by his death. No, it's clearly an alien. It came from the comet, so it has to be an extraterrestrial. I mean... It could just be an extraterrestrial plant. I didn't take it as a life form. You know, when I first saw this, my first thinking was the blob, right? You know, that was how the blob got here, and that, that was what this was a riff of. I also thought about the red vines in the War of the Worlds. And I don't think I knew War of the Worlds when I saw this, but since that time, I've come to know more of the work of H.P. Lovecraft, this is an homage to one of his more famous stories. The Color Out of Space is a story about a comet that falls and lands in a rural well and poisons the water and the whole farm sort of slowly deteriorates. They filmed it a couple times. If you saw Will Wheaton's The Curse, that was a very bad version of that story. Oh, very bad. Very bad. Yeah, but, you know, Lovecraft is cool. He he likes to write things in a way that he's like, I can't explain it to you. And the point is the alien is a color that we can't currently see. That it actually introduces a new color. That's why they can't really film this, because that's impossible to do. But it's a color that no one has ever seen before, and it's introduced, and it's phosphorus and glows at night, and it slowly makes everything else that comes in contact with it glowing. It's meant to be a horrific story. And I think Weeds, it's not as comedic as this. I'll say that much. The original short story has 
kind of a parody of the Lovecraft story, but I feel like this is even more of a, an extrapolation, an even grand, more grandiose slapstick comedy. Watch this hick be destroyed. I, I feel like, yeah, as Arnie said, this is to be thought of as a comedy. The one other thing I, I ha- impression I had about the short story was it felt like a Vietnam kind of thing, like that part of the grass growing on everything and all. There was a lot of references to America and the war and all that, and it would have been written, I think, at the time when that war was still going on. It feels like the war coming home. Yeah, it was shortly after the war, 76, and there were some references to Fourth of July. King wrote about the war a lot, but if you look at his writing at that time, go back to some of my Night Shift short stories. He was aping Lovecraft and Poe considerably, so... Now that you've told me about that story, I will definitely have to check that out before getting to the books and nachos on this. And here, because we've done this out of order, we may not pay attention, but this is taking place in Castle Rock, the first time Castle Rock is appearing on film. Oh, I must have. Was there a sign or is that just behind the scenes? No, there was a sign. Okay, I missed that. So this is the first Castle Rock main in cinema. Yeah, even though it was filmed in New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, did that short story have a department of meteors at the local college? <laughs> and that, that's the kind of comedy. Oh. It did. It, I mean, it had him thinking that he could sell this to the university. It wasn't Department of Meteors, but he thought he could get no less than $25 from the university for it. And so it did have that thought and it did have him afraid of doctors, afraid of amputation, and honestly afraid of doctors' bills. And so it does go into these things, but not as broad. The thing that gets me with this story and what I think is really effective is it starts so broad that it's disarming, right? It's like, oh my God, what have you got here? And you see the doctor and the Department of Meteors, and everything's played by the same actor. I mean, you've got Stephen King, but the only other actor in this is Bingo O'Malley. And he's in the Department of Meteors, he's the doctor. Is he the dad? He is the dad, too. And so what he's seeing is his father... In all of these roles, his father who died a few years ago, it's who he thinks of as every authority figure. And once the father shows up, you know, obviously his subconscious, some part of his rational brain trying to get through to him, don't get in the water. The plant's going to grow in the water. This becomes a tragedy. It went from comedy to tragedy. And that, I think, makes it even more impactful for me. Is is that the whole point the father shows up? Because I'm like, oh, you get in the water, that's going to make the plant grow. But this Jordy is so stupid. I don't know where the pathos is when when he's talking to his dead dad in the mirror. I I just, I don't get any of that tragedy. It's clearly coming from just the makeup effects. If you're not horrified at the idea of grass growing out of your dick, then, I mean, I don't think you're going (laughs) to feel for it because of King's nuanced performance. It would be awesome to be Swamp Thing. <laughs> there is that. Yeah, there has been a superhero that has also gone through this transformation. But I do feel like it is horrific. And by making him not smart, it does make it more tragic. The naivete there that he messed with this meteor because he thought he could make what to us sounds like very paltry sum. You know, maybe he can talk him up from $50 to $200 at most is what he's hoping to get out of this. And it cost him his life. Yeah, I get it, Arnie. I I agree. There 
is a sadness that does permeate the story as it goes on, as well as slapstick comedy. Now, let me come out. I mean, I've been defending this quite rigorously. I clearly see its flaws. King's acting, it took me a lot of times watching this to come around on it. I would have considered this the worst the first time I saw it, the second time I saw it, the fifth time I saw it, but I've come to love it through repeated viewings and understanding of what's going on here. But yeah, it's not going to be for everyone. This is probably going to be the most polarizing of the five stories. Yeah, I, I say cut it. The movie is long. I mean, it's worth saying Creepshow is two hours. Five stories feels a little bit long. If you were only going to do four, which one to cut? I don't know. I know that me as a kid found this one to be the least impressive. I think I have another least favorite now. So I'd save this one. This movie actually, when it was done, was 10 minutes longer. They did this kind of as an independent production. They took it to Cannes, not, you know, in competition, but just as the film market. Warner Brothers bought it, but they wanted it to be two hours or less. So they cut 10 minutes out of it, which Romero, it was like cutting off a pound of flesh for him. He did not want to part with those 10 minutes. Was it 10 minutes from this episode? It was 10 minutes from the overall film. Okay. So he felt like it slowed it down. And you asked which one, if they didn't film one, they almost didn't make their creeping up on you. That was the one they ran out of money and Romero basically called the whole crew together and said, we got like four days and no money. Can we make this or should we not? And the crew said, no, we can make this happen cheap. So it almost was shorter. It almost was four stories just because of monetary reasons. I don't know if Stephen King was famous enough that people watching this back in 1982 would know it's him. They might just think that he is a reject from Hee Haw. It's questionable, but by 82, I mean, once The Shining hit... And Dead Zone, he was the number one seller. He was on a lot of book tours. But honestly, not everyone was going to be very literary. So no, I think that this would have been lost on some of the viewers. Yeah. So maybe that's the only reason to keep him in this part. If you had a better comedic actor or dramatic actor, I do think you could have gotten more out of this segment. It could have been better than it is. But yeah, I feel something when he blows his brain away. I mean, I don't dislike this episode. Is it a brain or is it just pollen? Yeah, well, exactly. He is so turned on the inside out that he's more plant than man when he finally gets the shotgun barrel to the head. And I do like the short story, the way it talks about his mindset, how his mind is going. He's being taken over by the plant creature and he's able to exert enough will and the plant creatures have no idea what exactly he's trying to do. They don't know what a gun is. So this is his last, I mean, his last conscious act was going to be attempting suicide. He just finally succeeded in something in his life when he ended it. In that short story, does it give a reason why he doesn't just want to give himself to the plant creatures? Like, if I knew they were somehow torturing his mind, or I, I don't know, I need something. This is a broad comedic performance with, again, no whys, so I'm just supposed to buy that he wants to shoot himself. Body horror. The idea that your body is going to go through such a transformation is the reason why you don't want it to happen. 
Which it's already gone through, though. He should have got on that earlier. Yeah, I mean, but to me, that is why you would reject this. You know, I developed a phobia from this. I will say the lasting effect of this episode was that I was from the South and would routinely go back to Atlanta, Georgia and South Carolina for family visits. I was deathly afraid of kudzu. I don't know if you know about this plant, but it grows over everything there. And I was afraid like it would be a similar kind of like, oh my God, I hope I don't touch kudzu. <laughs> yeah, I got a phobia from this film too, but not this segment. It will come later. Yeah. And I understand if he hoped that it could be resolved. I mean, Honestly, let me get serious for a moment. Think about people with horrible cancer. You take the chemo, you take the radiation, you do all of these things that make you throw up, make you weak, make your hair fall out. You fight and you fight, hoping you're going to live. And eventually you reach a point where you realize there's no hope and that's where you move to Oregon and take your own life. You can do that in California now as well oh. if you have a terminal disease. So Good to know. I have two options. <laughs> yes. God. But here, here's the problem with that. Again, I never see him take a weed whacker to himself. I never see him trying to fight. He just sits around and, and makes, when you can see his face, just goofy faces. I, again, I don't get any kind of dramatic performance out of this one. I feel like you want the movie done by Bruce Campbell or something. And I get that. That might have been more fun Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell style, but I accept it for what it is, and it's short. It passes by quickly. I don't think it belabors its mistakes, so in that respect, it sort of rolls off me. And after the story, we do get a little cartoon segment where we see that comic book flying by. Now, because I know how this movie ends, I caught it this time, but you see the gag. There's always those gags you could buy in old comic books. The x-ray glasses. You do see an ad for that voodoo doll with the order form cut out as it blows by. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, they're going to draw attention to it later when Tom Savini shows up as a garbage man, but yeah. Here it is, just setting it up a little bit. Again, I love that about this movie. They've teased what is going to happen, and yet it's still a surprise when it does. And I also love it because it's so faithful to those comics. You know, I didn't read the EC comics, but I did read Boy's Life and several things like it. Yes, Boy's Life. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, trick cigarettes, electric buzzers, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I wanted to send away for it, but I never was allowed. Now we get to the third story, and this is my favorite. This coming in, I remembered so well, and I just love everything about something to tide you over. Agreed. I really like this one. I think it's diminished only because it comes after Father's Day, and it's so much like Father's Day that I feel like that, that hurts it. You know, to have two stories about zombies coming back from the dead. But I do feel like this one is calibrated in a way that's more faithful to the irony of a short story. That we have a victim here. That Ted Danson is just sort of a nice adulterer. The nicest one we can imagine. <laughs> He's with a woman who wants to leave her husband. She doesn't want his money. She doesn't want anything from him. They are in love and they just want to have a happy life together. And Richard Vickers, Leslie Nielsen just won't let that happen. Can I say, Leslie Nielsen, you know, airplane, naked gun, he plays a great villain. Like, I love his performance in this segment. And I agree, this is one of the top ones for me. Yeah, Leslie Nielsen, I knew primarily from the comedies that came later. But it was weird for me when I saw this. I saw this after Naked Gun came out. And it was very much in my mind. And, of course, Airplane... But he was a serious, dramatic actor for quite a while, and he plays it well. 
Yeah, we know him as children of the 80s for a late career that he did not have for the rest of it. I mean, he was in Forbidden Planet. He he was in campy movies. He might have honed his deadpan comedy style being in those stilted sci-fi movies of the 50s. But yeah, he was by and large a dramatic actor until the 80s. And so it wouldn't be weird to cast him in this way. And he's great. Yeah, he could have been a Bond villain. He's got a nice suave insanity to him. And that's what I have to wonder here. He comes to Ted Danson, Harry Wentworth, and he seems very cavalier. Like, you know, he's like, would rather focus on the TV set than listen to this guy explain why he's been cheating on him. I did think he was a TV repairman for a second (laughs) because of that. He ends up saying that when it comes to the things that he possesses, he can be a little insane about it. Is this guy mentally unbalanced? Which is to say, is the thing that's going to happen to him after he murders these lovers something that takes place in his head? Or does it really happen? Given that this is Creepshow, I'd say it really happens. There's nothing in here to really suspect that he's anything other than psychopathic and obsessive i mean he's he's a collector he's a videophile he's got a huge vhs collection he's recording his murders so that he can replay them later and i think he's a little crazy in that way but i don't think he's seeing things crazy it would be different if he was accusing harry of sleeping with becky and harry wasn't having the affair Mm, you're right. That would be an extra twist. If, if Indeed, yeah, if he was accusing him of things that aren't true, if he was seeing things that weren't there at the beginning of this, you could make a better case for what I'm implying. But you're right. It's creep show. You come back from the dead. Yeah, when Harry and Becky show up, I actually wish the segment ended earlier than that. I, I think it goes out stronger just seeing Richard as this, again, like Father's Day, this upper crust rich guy you know you know he's rich because it's the 80s and he has multiple tvs stacked up next to each other because that's what you do when you're rich in the 80s just be a crazy rich guy that kills lovers like i would have loved the reveal just to be like he has this reducing this collection of tapes or that this was just something he did over and over and over that he was just a psychopath i just love the way he kills them though the fact that he brings out video cameras and this is 1982 this was expensive equipment he's rolling out here and (laughs) the extension cords alone oh my god (laughs) bring it out to the beach and he's filming Becky as the tide's coming in and just the thought of being trapped in the sand and the water slowly rising up and drowning in that way. I mean, Ted Danson was really stupid for getting in that hole, but (laughs) I I would take the gunshot. I agree. This segment works really well. It's just like a snuff video because (laughs) it is such a horrific torture device that he comes up with. Like, I don't need zombies after that. They end up copying it in Cat's Eye. I feel like that story, The Ledge, is very similar, where it's the guy is like, you've been cheating with my wife. It's the tennis instructor, and Robert Hayes has to go walk around the building. The difference between that one and this one is, I never believe that Ted Danson really has a chance here. He tells him he has a chance. He's like, if you hold your breath, if you keep your head, you can fight the tide. But the way that it films, when it first comes in, you see the bucket rolling out and him slapping the waves. Uh, yeah, all of it. You just feel like even the crab that kind of walks up on Ted Danson. <laughs> Once he's in there, neck deep in sand, he's a goner. I don't feel like he has any chance to survive. It, it all depends how far out he 
buried them because there's a point where that tide comes in and it's going to just cover you the whole time. It doesn't unless you can hold your breath for hours, you're dead. Yeah, and there's that shot of him when he's dead underwater, his hair floating, which is a great shot, by the way. I mean, just really impressive to get Ted dancing underwater like that. But if he's that deep, there's no way to do it. It would have more of that if the waves were crashing at him, but he'd never go fully under. Maybe it goes up to his nose, but he's not completely submerged for for long. And yeah, if he could hold his breath and time it right, he could make it. But yes, there's no question. This is a murder. Ted Danson, by the way, I saw this and I'm like, what the hell is the guy from Cheers doing in this movie? I didn't realize in 88, Cheers wasn't on yet when this came out yes correct he was probably in body heat and that might have been the only other thing that film goers would know him from yeah he apparently was talking on the set like i auditioned for this show in a bar i don't think it's going to go anywhere (laughs) (laughs) i like ted danson a lot this isn't one of his better performances but he's not bad here i do think that the better acted segments end up being the ones that i'd like better that they they make more of an impression And that's why I like Father's Day in this one probably the best. And I like when they come back as zombies. I don't think the design is quite as cool as the one in Father's Day. But Ted Danson and Galen Ross all dressed up here. And the way they film them off kilter and like a comic book panel, it's fun. Yeah, I'll say when Richard's shooting at him and, you know, we, we see Becky getting bullet holes put in her head. I mean, those, those are good effects. I, it, it's weird what they decided to do for the voices. Like they added bubbles to it. So it sounds like they're underwater. It makes it very hard to understand them. They reminded me of Merman from Masters of the Universe. Yeah, they're covered in seaweed. <laughs> there is, there is something, yeah, diminished, but they don't need to frighten us. We are with them. That's what I mean about this story being calibrated. We have the victims coming back from the dead to get revenge and that's how it should be father's day was a twist in that what came back from the dead was what should have been buried the bad guys win and usually in these stories we're happy by the end of it it's an ironic twist but usually the right decision has been made and that definitely feels true here that leslie nielsen is going to get buried and thinks he can hold his breath is a great way to end and the fact that we don't know he might be able to he seems really confident to me that he is not going to die so yeah but look where they freeze it right when the water splashes him and he his smile fades he he can't speak anymore i they let you know and i do like the way that it transitions from cartoon and the real shot in all of these things again the fact that this is part of a comic book that we're flipping through it just adds more to the fun but i'll admit this movie does get a little long and at this point when we're done with it it It's like, wow, we still have almost an hour left in this movie, and I feel like we've had three meaty stories. Yeah, and most of that last hour is going to be the crate. This thing goes on a long time. I feel like this is the one. I don't know that I'd cut it from Creepshow, but I know I'd cut it down. I I feel like all of these more or less can be trimmed somehow. Maybe not the the lonesome death of Jordy Varel because that's already pretty trimmed. But yeah, I, I definitely, the crate, they could cut a lot out of this one. And I think a lot of the reason why it takes so long is that King felt the need to stick with the way that he told it in the short story. Oh, so this is one of his stories, so it has to match the book exactly. Okay. Well, not exactly. I read this short story and... 
this movie spends a lot more time setting up Billy as a drunken bitch than that story does. In that story, there's a couple lines. It's mostly told from the point of view of Dexter, the guy who's going to find the monster. And there's a couple of lines where Dexter's like, yeah, that Billy is a horrible shrew. But this movie is going to spend quite a bit of time with Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau here. And why not? They're two great actors of different caliber, but great in their own way. Mm. They're one great actor, and then one... <laughs> and then Adrian Barbeau. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, but I do like all, like, the death fantasies that the husband has. Like, again, th there's stuff in here that I do like, even though it does go on long. I, ooh, she grates on me, you know. But I, I do like when Henry, the husband, fantasizes about shooting her or whatnot. Well, what I mean about it following the short story is the structure of it. The fact that... On the page, it made sense that we had a, a narrator telling us a story about a crate being found and then going beyond that to find the second narrator. But we don't need to structure the story this way. I do feel like that Henry could be the one to find this crate or be with the janitor when he's flipping his coin and finding that long lost in this old academic hall is a Arctic expedition crate filled with a cooing something. Yeah, I don't know why they have to do those whole setup with the janitor. Yeah, get to it quicker. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. You just, there's too many characters. They, they have this other professor that comes in just for a kill. Grad student. Yeah, okay. But I, I feel like there must be some way of streamlining this so that we get the point of it faster. The, all that we really want to enjoy is the irony that when a man discovers there's a monster, he doesn't freak out. He thinks of it as a way of killing the worst monster, the one that he's married to. There may be something I missed in this story, but he's going through a lot of trouble to kill his wife why not just divorce her? He doesn't want to give half his stuff up. Come on. The reason why a lot of people don't want to divorce. Plus, he can't deal with the confrontation. He can't deal with the idea of having a fight and saying, yeah, I want to leave you and the fallout from that. But yeah, passive aggressive, you know, let a crate monster eat her. <laughs> <laughs> then he's not even guilty, right? He just sort of, you know, let it happen. Yeah, this is a lot of setup, and I know it's because they want to have a couple different kills here. They The other movies have actually been really streamlined in that there's not too many deaths. But this, kind of like Father's Day, they're setting up some dominoes so that we can have this monster who Tom Savini and his team named Fluffy, and I can't get that out of my head. <laughs> yeah, I saw that online, yes. <laughs> so we want to see Fluffy get some kills in here, and it's going to be the janitor... And it's going to be this grad student and just showing what Fluffy can do with the teeth and what Tom Savini can do with some makeup. I do like the janitor's death. Like that's him and Dexter are opening up that crate and, you know, his arm gets bit and then he's just slowly gets chomped up and pulled into that box. I, I did like that death. But yeah, they, they got to do another one that they're going to take a really long time to slowly crawl under the stairs and look at it like uh, it goes on for a while. I don't mind that it, that goes on. I think the problem is, is that they show it too early. They show the monster and it doesn't look good. And that takes me out really fast. And I think it only looks worse as this goes on. Like I, you really realize this is just a puppet they're playing with. Yeah, he, he 
reminded me of Teak from those Ewok movies. Remember the second Ewok TV movie? (laughs) Yeah, it it could be Teak. But again, what was this? I think, again, this was another Lovecraft thing. He wrote a story at the Mountains of Madness about an Arctic expedition where they found monsters. I don't know that they were like this. This just looks like a guy in an ape suit. And this came out the same year as The Thing, another Arctic monster. Yeah. Yeah, was this before or after The Thing? Because that's what I was thinking of. After. Same summer, or yeah, a little bit after. But yeah, they're doing some kind of reference here too. It was to be mailed to Julia Carpenter. The monster of the story is Adrian Barbeau, who is John Carpenter's wife. John Carpenter made the thing. They must have known about that movie, right? There's a little in-jokes going on here. Well, Barbeau didn't want to do this role. John Carpenter talked her into it by saying, hey, George Romero's a genius and you need to go do his film. So I don't know how if it went any further than that, but... Okay. Yeah, but the fact that it was being mailed to a carpenter on that crate, I I do agree with you, Stuart. It does feel like they're going after something there. Yeah, I just don't know if they knew about the thing, or maybe the thing also drew on that Lovecraft story, because, again, yeah. Oh, it did. No, without a doubt, that thing is very influenced by At the Mountains of Madness. Without a doubt, as well as the original thing from Another World. And let's not forget, the crate was written in the 70s and told this exact story. King was adapting himself, which meant very few changes. Yeah, but was it being mailed to Julia Carpenter? That's, I guess, what I'm saying. No, that could very well be a reference to John Carpenter. I'm just saying the rest of the story, the Arctic expedition is straight from that 70s short story. And yeah, no, I'm just saying there's little in jokes here and there's, there's little in jokes to the other segments in Creepshow as well. I do feel like this university might very well have been the one that Jordy Verrill wanted to bring the comet to, right? <laughs> I mean, I did read online that every segment, I didn't notice it while watching it, but every segment shows that ashtray yes that was used to kill the father in father's day also the grandfather clock that's in father's day appears at hal holbrook's house yeah there was a on this bonus features disc that i talked about just desserts they actually gave the minute marker of each ashtray appearance because it's sometimes really hard to spot but yeah it's a thing that they've kept going through there yeah, I felt like this one is not a comedy per se. I mean, it's it's kind of darkly funny how it turns out, but I do feel like there's playful little referencing going on here, but not enough to justify the 30-minute length. This is by far the longest story in the movie, and it should not be. And the fact that, okay, I, I, I know early on that once this monster is revealed, okay, that's how we're going to get rid of the drunk wife. The, the fact that it, it just keeps going and he's got to go throw it into the quarry and we're going to get that final shot of Fluffy breaking out of the box. It, the irony is not enough for me in this one. I like the final shot of it breaking out of the box. Again, it fits with this whole short story anthology motif. They like to end on that cliffhanger that evil is not really defeated. I do think that there's a lot going on. Although I... I enjoy it, though. Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau give such great performances. I'll admit that when the janitor, especially the grad student, if I were to cut one thing out of this, I'd cut this whole extra bit with the grad student. There's no reason the janitor couldn't just die and then Dexter runs and tells Henry the story. But when Henry 
and Billy are on screen. I'm having a lot of fun. Henry's note to Billy about that Dexter did a sexual assault. And I know it's a terrible inconvenience, Billy, but won't you come help? As you always say, <laughs> what will I do without you? Uh, this stuff I'm, I'm really jiving to. Yeah, that's why this one works better for me than the lonesome death, the humor here, because it's it's so dark. I just I go with this black humor more than with the slapstick that King was trying to pull off. And I think this is what King is more comfortable writing. You know, he worked at a university, and I I think the politics of it, the idea that there's a dean that flirts with young coeds, and you know, I actually think that he put himself in Tabitha in an early scene here. There's a Tabitha and Richard Raymond that pop up for no reason but to introduce characters and it's where we first get to see that Billy is a gossip that she really likes to talk about the other professors and their scandals and let's not forget that at this time nobody knew Stephen King was Richard Bachman so Richard and Tabitha exactly I feel like this story is of two minds there's a story about an unhappy man married to a bitch of a wife who figures out a way to kill her and that's the one that I like but then there's this story of this monster in a crate and I don't like the look of this monster I don't know where it comes from i don't know what the point is it comes from the arctic in the 19th century <laughs> yeah 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 i uh, you get what i'm saying i feel like there's a, a big component of the dust ex machina goes unexplained in a way that yes we've had lots of happenstance throughout this people just come back from the dead comets just fall from the sky i really wanted more ties between henry and this crate that he was a zoology professor that he might have known what this is or or have some knowledge of what where the expedition went to i just wanted more there it felt like two different stories mashed into one and it could have just been better i'm gonna argue i actually somewhat like this creature design with the big long teeth and everything but i'll agree that even the short story it feels like two separate stories mashed into one. That short story takes a weird careening turn when this whole thing that's about Dexter suddenly becomes about Henry killing his wife. That is jarring. And here, being in movie form, it does feel like we've got two different movies with the same monster. Like, it's a story and its sequel all in a half an hour. But again, I love Hal Holbrook's performance in this when he's there and can't control his laughter. And I thought, I hadn't seen this movie in 20 years. I thought it was going to take a real dark twist because he's beating Billy. He's slamming her into the crate, trying to wake up Fluffy to come out and kill her. And Fluffy doesn't show up. I thought he was just going to have snapped her neck or bashed her head in and been like, oh shit, I killed her. Now I have to live with that. And then Fluffy would kill him. But no, Fluffy eventually pops out like a jack-in-the-box and kills Adrian Barbo. But that was good tension. I did feel like that was where it was at its best when Billy is coming to, you know, laugh at a sex scandal with the Dean and, in fact, is being lured closer and closer to that box and is it going to come out? Yeah, I agree. That That's the best part. Unfortunately, there's like five more minutes where we have to have Dexter wake up and... You know, I don't know what we get out of this. They sit down to play chess and it's meant to be implied like they have something on each other and and thus the secret will be buried. But I don't know. They're friends and everyone agreed Billy deserved to die. So it's not a hard secret to keep. You know, I feel like they, they try to milk this for more than it's worth. 
And Dexter seemed to somehow think he could be implicated in the murders when, in fact, what, he opened a crate with a janitor and didn't know. There is absolutely nothing he's going to go down on. Yeah. It just seems miscalibrated. I see where they were going with this, and I do like many aspects of it. I agree. How Holbrook is a whole lot of fun in this, the best part of this. But I, for me, I think if I were voting, I would say this is my least favorite and at the very least needs to be trimmed down, if not removed. And I will admit that once this one ended... I felt like I was, all right, deep breath. We got another story and, and about 20 more minutes to go of a one-man play, pretty much. Again, by, by coming later, you can't help but think about Jody Verrill, right? It's kind of the same thing, except it's cockroaches covering him instead of space grass. Yeah, but I, I like this performance more. I like this set more. I, it feels very Terry Gilliam, Brazil to me when, when we're looking through that peephole and everything's enlarged. I just like this setting more than the Lonesome Death one. Sure. You know, King certainly likes to demonize the rich. I do feel like it's a target throughout this movie. You know, we saw it in Father's Day. Jody Vero gets punished for trying to make money. Yeah, here we have a man who has everything and... Again, I ask, is it madness? Do cockroaches really come or does he just get so paranoid that people are trying to break in and take his things that that he sees enemies everywhere and it's just his fevered brain? I think the cockroaches are really there because, again, it's Creepshow and my honest belief is it's the cockroaches' revenge. These have all pretty much, with the exception of Jordy Verrill, been revenge tales. And so I think the cockroaches are upset that he hates them so much and they've banded together and said, we're not going to take it. I feel the cockroaches represent like all his enemies. Like there's a janitor that's on vacation at Disneyland and Mr. Pratt wants him to come back from vacation to get rid of the cockroaches. There's a woman whose husband committed suicide because of some business deal. There's Mr. White, the superintendent who kind of mocks him and, oh yeah, we'll get those exterminators to you. I, I do feel like... This is just Pratt's comeuppance embodied in these cockroaches for all the bad he's done. Yeah, King says very much that when you're the lonely man up top, you know, Jody Vera was the lonely man on the bottom, but this is the guy on the top. And he just sees the world as nothing but, yeah, an infestation that he can't love, that he has no one there, that he lives in this sterile white room, uh, you know, and only interacts with people through the phone and is always, you know, spraying and spritzing that his garbage is like a vacuum tube that sucks things away. I love that. Can I get that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, have you ever used the garbage on an airplane? It's sort of like that. The toilet. Yeah, I, yeah. I can see it. But yeah, th this is a, a very sad existence. This is a very sad man. And of course, he's cruel. Of course, he laughs when his enemies commit suicide and drop dead and all of that. But when you live this detached and dehumanized, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, at first I even wondered, where is he? Is he in an office? Because he's got like these computers with magnifying glasses with the stocks going continually. But no, this there's a jukebox. This is his apartment. I guess maybe he does all his business out of here because he's like Howard Hughes, isn't it? He's a German or something but he, i do find it funny he, he keeps playing those rock and roll records he says it's a germ proof apartment so i definitely got a howard hughes vibe here but you know what i see a lot of stuff going on here first of all i now know that they had to do this on a really cheap budget but this is actually my favorite of all the set designs everything is white everything is the utmost tech the fact that he's got computers there office phones and yet 
In the midst of it all is this wooden jukebox that just sits out separate. And this character has more going on, because when I first saw him, I saw him as a very early version of like a Gordon Gecko, right? Greed is good, I don't care if this guy kills himself because now we don't have to give him a position on the board, all of that. But later on, he says one line that really sticks with me. It's, he grew up in the projects and he knows how to deal with a bug. That means this guy's a self-made man. He started in the projects. Yeah, Hell's Kitchen. And worked his way up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that redeems him in my eyes, but when you are fighting to get to the top, you tend to see everyone as an enemy. And so everyone is a bug. Everything is about squashing the competitor. And you cannot love, you cannot care about anyone else. It makes them tragic, I suppose. But are we rooting for the cockroaches? I'm certainly rooting for White, who is who's laughing at, at the way that he's being dismissed. And he's a black man named White, and Upston Pratt is going to... He's making some very patronizing comments about how his kind are good in service roles here. Certainly when that's happening, we're wanting to see somebody get revenge yeah I, d I don't like pratt at all i i clearly want him to die in this I, yeah maybe he came up from the ghetto to become a self-made man but no he's clearly the bad guy in this segment he's the bad guy but come on these are cockroaches it's very hard to side with the cockroaches those are the nastiest grossest i first saw this movie where i was living in florida and i'll tell you one of the most horrific experiences of my life is moving to florida and seeing a cockroach in the curtains of our house and being like oh my god there's a cockroach going to squash it the fuckers fly down there they have wings they buzzed me oh my god i, I so i am anti-cockroach and so i may not like this guy but i want those roaches deader than i want him i didn't have a problem with bugs when i was eight when i watched this after this segment i had a legit phobia like where even crickets freak me up especially cockroaches because of this movie because my cousin can't close your eyes gotta be a man and watch it and it wasn't until those bugs like popped out of the body that just i flipped out and i was afraid of cockroaches for decades. It wasn't until I moved to Texas where I had to deal with big cockroaches on a regular basis that I finally overcame that phobia. But before I'd be living with friends, if there are cockroaches in the room, I would leave the room. I'm like, you got to go kill it. I can't go in the room <laughs> until that thing is gone because of this movie. <laughs> oh, I'm with you. I was in my early teens, but the way this ends with his body having the bugs come out of his mouth oh. and everything, my sister was staying with us at that time. She was watching me. I was too young to be left alone. And I asked her, I'm like, can this happen? Can bugs crawl in you? And she's like, well, yeah, if you're dead, they can go in there and eat and nest. And I'm like, oh my God, it's real. <laughs> I was worried about the kudzu. You were worried about the roaches. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. Uh, watching it now... Ooh, okay, this, yeah, this is that final segment where they didn't have enough money because that dummy these cockroaches pop out of, like, it's kind of laughable watching it now, but as a child, like, that seemed like the most real thing ever. Now, that dummy, yeah, they needed a few more bucks for it. I think I just paid attention to dummies less, and maybe we all did as a society, or maybe I was just young, but watching this, the first Terminator, Total Recall even, there's so many where it's like, oh yeah, they just cut to the dummy and... Yeah, this one is no different, but those bugs, I found some funny stories. There were tales. This was filmed up in the Pittsburgh area where Romero likes to work. Was PETA on set? No, the exact opposite. Oh, wow. They actually s sent some people to Guatemala where they went into a bat cave 
and apparently scooped out the bat shit and set a bag in and filled them with thousands of roaches. Yeah, those big hissing ones. Yeah. Imported them to the States. They had their own trailer on the set during all of these (laughs) things being filmed as they bred. And what was started at 8,000 ended up like 25,000 roaches. And every single person on set had a story of these roaches because they were getting loose. They were escaping. There's stories that they've changed the ecosphere a little by bringing these Guatemalan (laughs) roaches to Philadelphia. And when this was all done, I was thinking like you, Jacob, I'm thinking PETA. I'm thinking you can't hurt a roach. No, they tried to make this set as tight as possible. And when they were done filming, they threw some bug bombs in and nobody returned for three days till they were all dead. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that is... These days you have bug wranglers because there's so many movies would would have a scene like this. You think of Indiana Jones or something. I mean, there are plenty of movies that use creepy crawlies and no, you cannot kill them. You cannot gas them, smash them. That's horrible. Apparently those movie bugs cost 50 cents a bug. So if you wanted 12,000 of them, it was a significant portion of their budget. Whereas if you just wanted to send some entomologists to Guatemala, That was much cheaper. Yeah, and that's what should be stressed here is George Romero is an independent filmmaker. Yes, he is working for Hollywood now, but he has gotten by, he has honed his craft by cutting corners, not going with the unions or or what have you. You catch as catch can, and I understand that mentality. You do what you have to to get the movie done with the money that you have, and okay, that's what he did. I'm just glad I wasn't triggered by watching this again, and it didn't create a phobia all over. I I was legitimately worried about that going into this. Well, Jacob, let me just put your mind at ease, because from what I read, the average human being swallows about six cockroaches in their life while they sleep. So if it helps, you've probably already done one or two. Yeah, that's the average, though. So if you take over the world... It just depends on whether you live in a place that's that's bug infested. Oh, and he lived in Texas, so he's probably a good dozen roaches down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, down there, they deep fry him. <laughs> but yeah, you know, this segment, I, I feel like it makes a good bookend for Jody Verrill. It does have the gross factor going for it, and it's short. You know, it makes its point pretty quickly and and disappears but i think it's memorable it gives you some memorable images but i it's not the best of the bunch it's sort of in the middle but there's one more story we do have to close the book literally when the garbage men yes tom savini one of them i do love that they're chewing out people as they're going through garbage they're like chew your food (laughs) yeah they actually are (laughs) like tossing things back and forth. I think Emilio and Charlie Sheen watched this to get tips for their performance when they did Men at Work. Ugh, let's not remember that, shall we? <laughs> Something else that should be thrown out with the trash. But you know what? This was a real stunner for me because, yeah, I was with Billy. His parents didn't understand. They took away his horror and he was going to get revenge. But this felt one step removed. I had no idea it was coming. Now it seems obvious with the teases that we've seen that they pick up the comic book. And yes, the coupon's been cut out for the voodoo doll. Yeah, Savini makes sure to call that out. Oh, the coupon's gone. We can't get our voodoo doll. Yeah, I actually liked it a little more. 
subtle, like you said, Jacob, if we'd noticed earlier that it was gone. Here, they're just going to point it out very clearly so nobody can miss it. The coupon has been clipped. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that's the right impulse because we, they don't waste any time. Next thing we see is the breakfast table. Stan's been having a pain in his neck all night. We go upstairs. I don't think I understood what a voodoo doll really was when I saw this. To me, it felt like Billy was going to kill his dad here. And I was stunned by this. It was one thing to be angry with your parents. It was another thing to do what he was doing. I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was like looking at Damien. <laughs> I wanted a voodoo doll since I was six. I guess you never watched Gilligan's Island because there were all those voodoo doll episodes. Maybe that's where I knew what it was from. Yeah, I knew what voodoo dolls were. Hey, Temple of Doom. I mean, there was there were voodoo dolls around, but but that was much later. Yeah. But I'm saying I was watching Gilligan's Island in the 70s seeing that voodoo doll and having flames put to its feet and what have you. I mean, you could make the argument that Stan is not going to survive what Billy is putting him through. I don't know. No, I remember at, at eight years old, I was shocked by this ending. Like, to see a, a child attacking an adult through, even if it's magic, you know, it was just so mean-spirited, jabbing these needles through the neck. Like, that horrified me as a kid that someone a child would be able to do such a horrible act. Yeah, I agree. And, and I don't know if I had seen The Omen yet or, you know, some of the other killer kid movies that have been all throughout the 70s. But yeah, this one, it stuck with me. It made a big impression. And it was a good way to end. It leaves you wanting more. But do we want more? We got two more movies, whether we do or not. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Creepshow? And how do you rank the segments? Jacob. Yeah, I, there's a lot of good here. I mean, I, I've complained about the runtime. I think almost every segment could use some editing, either a, a lot or a little, to trim it down. Two hours for this kind of film seems a little bit long. But I gotta say, four out of the five segments work for me, more or less. They would be recommends, and that's sometimes how we do these anthologies, you know, just do the math, add them up. But I like the aesthetics of this film, from aping that comic book feel with the animation, the drawings, the framing of certain sequences, the, the colors, the primary colors that they'll use to highlight things, and some of the sets, too, like... They're creeping up on you. I just lo love the look of that set. Costumes, pretty good. You know, Romero coming in, I want some good zombies. We're going to get that. You know, this kind of film with this EC Comics type of horror, I want it to kind of feel dirty, like you got to bathe afterwards. I, I, I kind of feel like for a lot of horror, that's what works for me is when you're almost rooting for the wrong guy. You're rooting for the killer because everyone else is so awful. But you, you want to feel a little bit dirty about that. That's, that's how I feel about going into horror. And I do feel that way. Like this is a lot more tamer now watching it than I did at eight, but it's still effective. It's still a recommend for me. As far as ranking the segments, I'm going to go with the creeping up on you. That's my favorite. Again, I love the look of the set and just bugs. That's going to freak out a lot of people. Just bugs alone. They don't even have to crawl out of your face or your eyeballs or anything. I, I think that's going to scare you. Second is something to tide you over because, again, I just I love the nastiness of that torture device that Leslie Nielsen's character comes up with. Being buried up to your neck is the water. Just that water torture is hard to watch. So th that's second for me. Then Father's Day. I love the zombie in that one. I love the head cake. I wish we got a little bit more. Then the crate. I like the black humor. But yeah, it goes on too long. And then the one that's not a recommend for me. Skip over it. 
when you're watching this on DVD or Blu-ray is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. It's just too broad, the humor. It's, it's not scary to me. It, it sticks out as, as something that would should be in the Twilight Zone or something. I don't know. It shouldn't be in Creepshow. Yeah, I think Creepshow, Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, I'm lumping them together. So, yeah, that may be why I'm more forgiving of that one. Stuart? Shining, Carrie, Stand By Me... I don't know. It might be creep show. It's definitely in the top five. It's between that or dead zone for the fourth spot, but it's definitely top five Stephen King movie adaptations. It helps that we have someone that is minted in the genre at the helm. George Romero is the perfect pairing for Stephen King. I don't know if I'll be saying that later when they cover the dark half and some of the other collaborations that they've had, but here they have the budget they have the means, and they have the enthusiasm for the source material. I've never read those horror comics, but man, it makes me want to. It makes me feel like, yeah, you're at a campfire and I'm eight years old. And it doesn't matter if the stories aren't great. It's just about the environment. It's about being transported to that feeling of, of hearing illicit things when you're impressionable enough that they really have a, a great impact on you. And I think that this movie, yeah, it's, it can be repetitive. There are problems probably with all the stories, but I like all the stories. There's not a story I would give a thumbs down to. The overall effect, I think, is one of just of joy uh, of for comics. I think it's one of the stronger comic book movies we've covered for the horror genre. I, I've got a lot of praise for this. I'm going to go high recommend. As far as you know, ranking them, I can definitely say Father's Day and Something to Tide You Over. They're very similar. They are my favorites. I'd also throw the Billy Voodoo Doll story in there. The other three have problems. I think that probably I would go with they're creeping up on you. And then, you know, if Crate were shorter, I could go with Crate because there are some of the best things about the Crate cannot be found in Jordy Verrill, but Jody Verrill is short and gets to the point, so I'll go with that and then Crate at the bottom. But then again, none of them are, are being tossed out. I think cumulatively, the sum is greater than the individual parts, and you're going to have a good time. If you like horror comedies, this is one of the best I can think of. You say top five. I'm not sure if it's that high, but then again, I have things like Shawshank Redemption up there with The Shining, and you absolutely do not. Nope. But this definitely is on my cool list. When I think about the good Stephen King movies, the iconic Stephen King movies, the ones I hold up, it's not going to be Dreamcatcher and it's not going to be Graveyard Shift. It is going to be this and Cat's Eye and Carrie and Shining and Stand By Me. Those things are the ones when I think I like Stephen King movies that I think of. It's a lot of fun. I love the comic book gimmick. I love the way they use the panel framings and the camera angles and the coloring. It's really inventive, and you'd think it could get tiring, but it doesn't. A couple of the stories themselves do, but the film style, I like beginning to end. So it's really a strong recommend, and I don't think there's any of these individual stories I wouldn't recommend. That's the great thing. Some are better than others, but each one individually, if we were doing them, is a green arrow. My favorite, I've already revealed, something to tide you over. I just think the way those people die by being buried in sand and the tide coming in, it fits this comic book style so well. And Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen are probably my favorite actors in here. 
Number two, because it stuck with me when I was a kid and I still find it depressing, Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Number three, They Creep Up on You. I like that one a lot. The roaches are disgusting. I think it's just a whole lot of fun. I'd put probably what I call the Billy Bookends, number four, with the voodoo doll stuff and that. I mean, Tom Atkins is a lot of fun in it, and... I'll say Stephen King's son acts better than Stephen King. (laughs) Thank you very much. The son can learn writing from the father. The father can learn subtlety from the son. Uh, Next, I'll put the crate. It's a lot of fun. I do like the monster, the teeth on it and things. The longer we see it, the worse it looks. But I think it's fun. And Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau are a couple more of my favorite performances. And Father's Day is at the bottom, but again, it's still a recommend. It would just be a weaker recommend because I feel that was the least balanced of the revenge stories. But that's not all. There was a creep show too. It came out five years later. Oh, great. I can't see what phobias this is going to trigger. It was not directed by Romero. It was story by King, but not written by King. They're involved, but yes, in different capacities, in lesser capacities. They're involved, yeah. But we have three more Stephen King Tales of Terror coming next week. And in between, if you just can't get enough of horror or now playing, we can help you out. For a $10 donation, you can get on board with Fall, Silver Level Series, The Fly. We begin with Vincent Price Classic from 1958. Yeah, this Friday, our Fall Donation Drive begins. So for those who haven't been following us on Facebook or visited our website in a while or donated in spring and heard all of this, we are doing a lot of horror right now. We've got on the main feed, Creepshow, the new Blair Witch film, more Stephen King going all the way to Halloween. But for donation... Our Silver Level series, $10 or more, is all five Fly films. The Fly starts this Friday, then we've got Return of the Fly, Curse of the Fly, and then in November we're going to hit Cronenberg's The Fly and its sequel. Why the break in between? Gold Level donations of $25 or more are going to get to enjoy reviews of a lot more 1986 horror. We did sci-fi of 86 in spring. Great feedback from that. The people who listened, I wish there were more of you, but those who did really gave us great feedback and enjoyed the show. So we're doing it again. We're going to do The Hitcher, House, Chopping Mall, April Fool's Day, Vamp, Wes Craven's Deadly Friend, the Gene Simmons starring Trick or Treat, and a Lovecraft tale, From Beyond. Yeah, I remember the, the From Beyond is, you know, some of the ones I'm like, oh, nostalgia. I remember that. That was cute. And then some of them are upsetting. I That From Beyond still gets me. And I look forward to talking about all those films. I've seen all of them before, except for Chopping Mall. Somehow I missed that one. But I was big into horror in 1986, so it'll be a lot of reminiscence for me. And I got into horror in 87, missed Almost all of these. From Beyond is the only one I have seen for sure. And then at the platinum level, $35 or more, you get all of that. Plus, we're going to do more Lovecraft. We're going to do the Reanimator four-part series, we hope. Four. According to Isle Empire Pictures, this January, Reanimator Evolution is coming out. 
I don't know who Isle Entertainment Pictures is, but another movie. Wow. Okay. It sounds reasonable when I read the cast as Brad Dourif and Lynn Shay. Oh, Lynn Shay. That seems like the kind of cast that would do perhaps a direct-to-video <laughs> reanimator film. Okay, Brad Dourif, not Stephen Dourif. I, I get him confused. Okay, yes. Yes. The voice of Chucky. Okay. Yeah, he definitely could work as a mad scientist. Well, he's not Herbert West. That's actually... What? Yeah, he's going to be the hero character. We need to revisit Reanimator, because if you forget, Herbert West is kind of not the main character. And it looks like Herbert West is going to be played by Jonathan Skaich from Legends of Tomorrow. He plays Jonah Hex on that series. Ooh. Oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> Jonah Hex. <laughs> Well, you know it's got to be better than that. I haven't watched that show. I didn't even know Jonah Hex had found his way onto a TV series, so bully for him or bad for us. Well, supposedly this movie is coming out in February of 2017, so there's going to be a little bit of a break. We're actually closing donations on New Year's Eve, but if you donate now, you're going to get definitely reviews of the first three, and then whenever it comes out, but it's supposed to be February of 17. The new Reanimator reboot. I know you're a big fan of this. You talk about it quite often. I'll confess, I don't remember it. I know I saw the first two, never saw the third one. I know its reputation, but I like Lovecraft. So this will be the first time coming back since I've read the source material. I look forward to it. I don't know what I'll think, but uh, I want to return. And I'm not even the biggest fan on our team. Marjorie is an absolute reanimator diehard. She's been watching it since she was way too young to watch it. Mm. And so she'll be joining us for the platinum level reviews. And a quick reminder, all the money donated is what keeps this show going. We are going week after week. And we did some math. We are coming up on 300 weeks where we've never missed giving out an episode for free. That's incredible. And if you appreciate getting new content every week without us saying, hey, it's the holidays, we'll be back in January and taking December off and that, thank the donors or even better, donate to the show. Even if you don't want to hear those shows, it's the donations that allow us to do the Stephen King series, that allow us to do all the theatrical reviews we've done, that allow us to do the series that we have coming up, like with the Doctor Strange review, Rogue One review, and all of the David Lynch stuff that's on our schedule. So you can find all the details right now and get the first bonus show this Friday by heading to nowplayingpodcast.com and clicking the banner at the top. And I encourage you to donate before the first show is out, and that's all I'm going to say about that. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Until next time, thanks for the ride, lady. Thanks for the ride. Still here, kiddies? Well, it's time for this uh, boogeyman to boogie. I'll be slaying you, boys and boys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Why don't you ask us to leave? Fruit face? Yeah, why don't you run us out of town, chef? Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels.
come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. Also on our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. If there's any movies that you want to see, don't wait. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. I've never seen anyone so impatient, Billy, as if your life depended on getting the first copy off the presses. <laughs> While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Hey, looking for some companionship? Next week. Unless I get a better bank job. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I wonder how much they'd pay for it up to college. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Good idea. Maybe I should. Now Playing's Creep Show series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Why don't you go back to your computer, you geek? Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Quiet down. Why don't you talk too much? The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Heads are going to roll. I promise you that. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I can't get worried about it, man. I mean, uh, no matter how hard I try, I just can't get worried about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now playing as a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Till the next issue, try to stay scared. <laughs> Heavyweight duo here, Stephen King and George Romero together. We're back to Ro Zombie Lands. I, <laughs> I should clarify, there's a movie called Z Zombie Land. Yes. We're back to Living Deadland. I didn't read the EC comics, but I did read Boy's Life and several things like it. Yes, Boy's Life. I was just going to say that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> trick cigarettes, electric buzzers, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I wanted to send away for it, but I never was allowed. I sent away for the sea monkeys and they never came. And I really wanted <laughs> to send away for that muscle powder, you know, sand kicked in your face, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, Charles Atlas. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, yeah, I don't think that works, but sea monkeys I did eventually get in my adult life. I actually bought a sea monkey kingdom. You got some brine shrimp. FYI, they do not wear <laughs> crowns. They do not sit on thrones. They do not do really anything. They don't do tricks and jump through hoops. They're, yeah, basically little tiny shrimp. Eventually, they came out with a Star Wars sea monkey environment of... What? We, yeah, the, so we that was when I got my first sea monkeys was that. Mm. And your last, I hope. Yes, well, yes. He comes to Ted Danson, Harry Wentworth, and he seems very nonplussed. Like, he's messing around with the TV set while Harry is trying to explain why he's been having an affair with his wife and all of that. Uh, when you say nonplussed, do you mean he's confused and surprised? Like, like he's, un, he's unfeeling about it. Like, he's... Right, that is the opposite of nonplussed. It is? Yeah. Uh, no, nonplussed is a horrible word that nobody can use right, and I just learned about it. Oh, well, I've used it wrong my whole life. Yeah, I, I know. I read he was nonplussed. I take it as he didn't care. No, it means he cared a lot. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm nonplussed. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like mute point. Mute actually means it's debatable, and people use it for the opposite. All right, well, let me use a word that I do know the definition of. <laughs> he seems very cavalier 